Our passage comes from Psalm 27. I'll just read just one verse. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. You may be seated. Uh, We conclude our series on the character of God by looking at God's beauty. This is the final sermon in the series, and we are dealing with the subject of God's beauty. I found that uh, for many of the centuries of the Christian history, this characteristic of God was a very important one, and much was written and preached on. And then at some point, about two, three hundred years ago, we kind of stopped talking about it. So we're going to try to bring it back and try to, try to see what the fuss was all about for 17 centuries and why we've neglected it so much for the last three. I, I think there's something that is very important in this topic that needs to be restored and highlighted again, and I think it has tremendous implications for all of us, believers and unbelievers alike. I hope that it will become clear in the course of this message that beauty is not a lesser trait of God that's only important for the artist, and that's who gets excited about beauty. No, certainly they are, and we are, but I think beauty, in fact, is a character trait of God that ties all the other character traits together. You might recall that we began this series by looking at God's holiness, but God's holiness can be frightening. It could be even repulsive to some. It's the beauty of God that draws us and moves our hearts to love the holy God, which is why we end this series by looking at the splendor or beauty of God's holiness. This is from Psalm 96. We were called to worship God in the splendor or in the beauty of His holiness. We're going to really try to figure out what that phrase means today. I'll refer to it back uh, later. Now look at our text first. We'll, We'll work from our text. We find David in the context, I read just one verse to you, but in the context of the psalm, David is surrounded by his enemies. He is He is frightened for his life. He's fighting. And all these enemies are committed to his destruction. That's the context of Psalm 27. And in this context, in these circumstances, this is what David says. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in his temple. Don't you find it curious that in the midst of this assault by his enemies, David turns to beauty? I mean, isn't that weird? When you're suffering, when you're hurting, when all these things are coming against you, do you say, you know what I would really love? I would just love to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Who said that? Who says that among us? I mean, this is so unusual for us which tells you why we've neglected beauty for all these three centuries. But David somehow connects 
his circumstances with his desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in the temple all the days of his life. So why does he turn to beauty in the midst of conflict, pain, and suffering? I'll try to answer that question, and I will do so by looking at three connections. First, let's consider God's beauty and the human heart, the connection of beauty and our hearts. Secondly, let's consider God's beauty and the Christian life. What is the role of God's beauty in our spiritual experience? And finally, we will consider God's beauty in the face of Jesus. So God's beauty and the human heart, God's beauty and the Christian life, and finally God's beauty and the face of Jesus. In David's desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in the temple all the days of his life, we see a universal longing of the human heart. I actually talk about it quite often, and so this may sound familiar to you because I I do go to that topic and I do go to the desire of the human heart for beauty quite a bit because my experience bears it out. I think and I find that our lives are shaped by the irrepressible craving for beauty. Let me give you a rather trivial example, and then I hope to expand it for you to hopefully see how it plays out in your life as well. Now, as you know, our family has recently moved to a house that's a bit of a fixer-upper. And uh, I have been amazed how many remodeling decisions are made not based on functionality, but on appearance. Colors, patterns, materials, proportions. That is actually what occupies a lot of our decisions. Most of the conversations with the contractor are about the appearance. What is it going to look like? And so sometimes we would say, I think we'd really like this color here. And our contractor would say, but that's going to be ugly. (laughs) And then Jillian will say, well, they don't talk like that in America. Don't say that. He's he's from Afghanistan, and and, uh, I very much remember when I first came to to this country, people would tell me, don't say that. They don't don't say that. (laughs) So we're learning. But, But he often would say, this is ugly. It's not going to look good. You can do it, he says, but it's going to be ugly. (laughs) Why are we talking about beauty when we're just trying to fix up our house so we can live in it? I mean, it's something interesting that it's so important to us that we're willing to put money and time and effort into making things look a certain way, something that's pleasing to us and others, something that we consider beautiful. Well, my answer to that is because we were made to experience beauty. It's so deep within us, we can't help ourselves. We can't just say, let's just do it the cheapest way possible so it works. We don't do that. We're going to put extra money and extra time to make it beautiful because there's something in our hearts, there's some longing in our hearts for beauty. Now, at this point, we better ask, what is beauty? Can it be defined? Many philosophers have tried Usually in philosophy, beauty is connected to such ideas as order and harmony and symmetry or simplicity. And yet, as much as you think about it and you try to analyze why something is beautiful, you always come up with exceptions. You always find something that isn't symmetrical, that isn't simple, that isn't harmonious. 
that is out of order, and yet we consider it to be beautiful. There are lots of gardens. There are some gardens that are immaculately laid out in a, in a very clear pattern. We would say this is beautiful. And there are gardens that are just wild. And we would also say that is beautiful. However, anything that we consider beautiful, we have some sort of standard that must be met for something to be considered more or less beautiful. So if you look at a garden, you would say this garden would be more beautiful if it was this way. Or it's not as beautiful as it can be. There's some standard. It's, it's instinctive. There's something in our minds that make us think this is beautiful because of these qualities. I will call it perceived perfection. We perceive that something is perfect. Now, it may be more or less perfect, but we perceive that some standard has been met, and then we decide that this is, in fact, beautiful. And that's the first stage in our experience of beauty. You have to see something, and you have to perceive its perfection. The second stage is, is our attraction to it. It's not enough just to think it's beautiful, to think it's perfect. You need to be drawn to it. You're moved to it. Having encountered something perfect, we're, we're, we're drawn into the experience of it. We can't seem to get away from it. We can't keep our eyes off of it. The third stage is enjoyment. So it starts with a perceived perfection it, it, that goes to attraction and, and it goes to, to, uh, to the appeal to come closer, to look. And then there's enjoyment. There is pleasure in our interaction with beauty. There is fulfillment and satisfaction in our experience of beauty, or at least a potential for it. And there's a final stage, which is praise. We share our experience of beauty with someone else. It's incomplete unless we share it with somebody. Now, what I have just described in very broad general terms, our attraction to, our enjoyment of perceived perfection, I believe is a universally human experience. And if you look at different parts of your life and you just use this general paradigm, you will find that most of your life, if not all of your life, actually is ordered and proceeds along these things. Perceived perfection, attraction to it, enjoyment, and praise of it. From fashion, to sex, to gardening, to art, to camping, to home renovations, we are shaped and moved by beauty. Now, of course, our experience of beauty is deeply flawed because we are broken people. I don't have to tell you that. We're broken people. We live in a broken world. And though we are drawn to perfection, we quickly learn that nothing is perfect. You build a house, you do everything exactly the way you want it, and then you realize it's not exactly the way you want it. And very quickly, day by day, it deteriorates, things fall apart, they break down, and this is our experience of perfection. It's more in our mind than in our experience. Beauty, we find, is fleeting in this world, and so, are, so is our experience of beauty. We may think something is beautiful and there's attraction to it, but that attraction wanes because we realize that that beauty is not lasting. Along with our enjoyment of beauty, we experience disappointment and disillusionment. We find ourselves hoarding beauty instead of sharing it. And if we are honest, we often exchange beauty for ugliness. Now, David, 
King David, driven by this universal pursuit of beauty himself, like us, and yet also burdened by the brokenness of the human experience, even as his enemies are encircling him, he goes to the source of all beauty. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And the place where that happens is the temple. And so he wants to be there. He wants to see the Lord. He wants to experience His glory because he knows that that is actually what his heart longs for. All of us long for beauty, but not many of us know that beauty comes from God. David knows, and he goes directly to the source. He knows what all Christians know, that God is the standard of perfection that he made us with a thirst for beauty and that it can only be satisfied in the fountain of his presence and that our attraction to anything beautiful must ultimately lead us to him. So David knows that and he can cut through, he can see through all these weird experiences of life, all the brokenness, he can look in his own heart and see that his heart longs for beauty and he knows where to go. He says, I want to go to the temple, I want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord for the rest of my life. Now let's consider beauty from a distinctly biblical Christian point of view. In the world, there's a vague longing for beauty. There are secondary experiences of beauty. There's instinctual desire. There's some enjoyment. There's some attraction. There's some understanding of perfection. But we know what these realities actually are and where they point to. Now one of the the famous theologians that thought a lot about beauty in the 18th century was Jonathan Edwards. Edwards thought deeply about beauty and its relationship to the Christian life, and he wrote that the essence, the heart of the Christian spirituality is the experience of God's beauty. Now, hear what he's saying, because I think to us today, 300 years later, it sounds counterintuitive, it sounds controversial, and may even sound unbiblical. I'll make my case for that. Edwards says, the heart of the Christian spirituality is the experience of God's beauty. He says, at the core of the Christian life, what makes our spirituality Christian, what makes us spiritual people, what engages us with God, is our experience of God's beauty. Now, Psalm 96.9, the, the psalm we read and the, the verse that I pointed you to says it commands us to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, in the beauty of holiness. I'd like to suggest to you that the line between a true worshiper of God and an unbeliever or a hypocrite is the beauty of God. I think Edwards is right. I think what distinguishes a true Christian, a genuine worshiper of God through Christ from everybody else is their experience of God's beauty. Now, God's holiness, as I mentioned before, is not attractive to many people. Many people may agree that God is perfect. They may intellectually affirm that God is perfect. They may even be able to describe what God's perfection is. But they're not drawn to His perfection. They don't enjoy His perfection. Why? Because they don't see the splendor of His holiness. 
This is the difference. Many people know about the holiness of God. Many people are more orthodox in their understanding of God than you or me. And yet, that doesn't mean that they are genuine believers. What makes a person a genuine believer is the, is the experience of the splendor of the beauty of God's holiness and being drawn in to a relationship with God through His beauty, through the attraction, through the perceived perfection, through the enjoyment and eventually the praise of God. Now, the devil knows God to be holy, and yet he refuses to worship him. The devil knows that God is perfect. The devil knows what God is like better than any of us. And yet he refuses to worship him. Why? He doesn't see God as beautiful. He doesn't see his beauty. He doesn't accept that God is desirable, that he is attractive, that he is beautiful. In fact, the devil sees himself as more beautiful than God. This is at the core of his rebellion. He is competing with God for beauty. And thus God is less beautiful than he is. But genuine believers do not only perceive God as holy, they see the splendor of his holiness. They are attracted to God's holiness. They enjoy God's holiness. And they long to be satisfied in their direct experience of God. It's no wonder that this kind of faith, I'm talking about this real faith, this real experience of God in the splendor of His holiness, it's no wonder that that faith spreads all over the world. You can't help but share the beauty of the Lord with others. If you've experienced it, if you do experience it now, it naturally comes out in praise. That's part of our experience of beauty. One of the greatest and the best motivators for evangelism is your experience of the beauty of God. Because if you know Him to be beautiful and you're drawn to Him and you enjoy Him, you want to tell others about it. It's instinctual. It's part of the experience. You can't stop it. Now, anybody caught the Chelsea-Liverpool game yesterday? Raise, raise a hands really quick. Who, who watched? Linda, I love you. I'm so glad you're watching English football. Uh, <laughs> Manny, I knew about you, but we got two. Okay, that's pretty good. You know they call, they call football, European football, the beautiful game. Have you heard that phrase? The beautiful game. So yesterday, the beautiful game, that beautiful match, ended with a draw, which is, which is incomprehensible for the American sports fan, right? <laughs> Who won? But in the football community, there's such a thing as a beautiful draw, that is preferred to an ugly win. Does it make sense to any of you? I don't think it would. <laughs> Unless you see soccer, you see football as beautiful. You can, you can believe that it's symmetrical and there's strategy and tactics involved. You can talk about the influence of, of the sport across the world. You can talk about the cultural implications. You can talk about all of that and believe that and yet hate it. This is the same difference in our relationship with God. There are people who know about God, they can talk about God, they understand a lot of things, and yet they're not drawn to Him. They don't see the beauty. They don't see the splendor of God's holiness. All they have is just God's holiness. But they don't have the splendor. 
Now, what I'm talking about here is that the core, the heart of our spirituality, according to Edwards, I think according to the Bible, is the experience of God's beauty. When you think about the Christian conversion, coming to Christ, is it not the experience of being transfixed by the beauty of Jesus? Isn't that what, what happened to all of us Christians? That at some point you see Jesus as he is and you are transfixed by who he is? And you can't stop looking at him? And you can't stop following him? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's conversion. The light of the knowledge of the glory or the beauty of God in the face of Jesus shines on you, and you are so impressed by that, you perceive it as perfect that you can't help yourself but love Him. We become followers of Jesus because we meet Him and are so impressed by Him, we're so drawn to Him that we want to spend the rest of our eternity marveling at Him. Just being close to Him is enough. When you think about the process of sanctification or this process of being changed and transformed and becoming more like Jesus and reflecting Him in your practical holiness, in your heart, in your behavior, is it not the experience of beholding God's beauty? Isn't that what transforms us, is beholding God's beauty? Paul thinks so. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding the glory of the Lord, or we can say beholding the beauty of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image, same image that we're beholding, that we're looking at, from one degree of glory to another. There's a, there's a, a progressive change that happens as we look at Jesus. Now, you've heard it say that we become what we behold. Have you heard that phrase? That's sanctification in a nutshell. We become what we behold. What you look at is what you're going to be. What you spend your time, your energy on is what's going to shape you, what's going to make you who you are. But beholding God's beauty in the Bible or in prayer or in the church or in nature or in relationships, we become more beautiful. We actually change to reflect the beauty of the Lord in ourselves because we absorb and reflect it as we are with Him. Spiritual disciplines are simply channels of beholding God's beauty. And if you are struggling with sin, if you're struggling with discouragement this morning, what you need most of all is the beauty of the Lord. You need to see His holiness as beautiful. You need to see Him. You need to be with Him. Notice how often the Bible talks about seeing the Lord, seeing the one we can't see. There's a spiritual sight that's given to you at new birth, at the conversion experience. When you first come to Jesus, God gives you a new spiritual sight, and now you can see God. And as you see Him, He changes you to be more like Him. Jesus is actually committed to make us beautiful. Ephesians 5, I just did premarital counseling with a couple this past week, and we looked at this passage, and I was Again, every time I look at this passage, it's so impressive to know that Jesus right now is working to make me more beautiful. 
This is what he's doing. What is Jesus doing right now? Is he gone? Oh no, he's engaged and he's making you more beautiful. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he give his life for his bride, for us? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus is doing right now. This is what sanctification is. It's your experience of God's beauty reflected in you and changing you and making you more beautiful. You are becoming beautiful when you see His beauty. Now, when you think about our mission, our work in the world, is it not the experience of sharing God's beauty? Psalm 34, 5 says, Those who look to Him are radiant. Those who look to Him are radiant. You see, you can't help but reflect His beauty. And radiance implies that it is seen by others, that it shines into other people's lives. Because God's light shines on us, we shine in the world. Works of mercy, love of neighbor, verbal proclamation of the gospel, treasuring and protecting all things created by God, artistic excellence, these are all just the rays of the sun of righteousness refracted in our lives. David distilled the essence of the Christian life. Lord, thank you for this verse because David distilled the essence of the Christian life by saying one thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. He's saying there's one thing that's important to me, there's one pursuit in my life, and that is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. He wants beauty above all. He wants the direct experience of God's beauty in a relational encounter with Him, stretching into eternity. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord is conversion and sanctification. It is repentance and transformation. It is worship and witness, the deepest longing and the greatest satisfaction. That's the Christian life. The beauty of the Lord. Have you thought about that? This is distinctly biblical. And yet we've forgotten. We've reduced the Christian life to all sorts of other things, but this is what it is. is the direct experience of the beauty of God and being transformed by it and sharing it with others. Philip Ryken, who's the president of Wheaton College, where one of my kids goes, spoke to the, spoke to the student body at their first in-person chapel service earlier this week. It was very exciting. I was able to watch online. And he picked a theme for this year, Beauty Out of Ashes. And he, he will be speaking about beauty during those chapel services, and he started it by talking about beauty being the destiny of the believer. Listen to what he said. He said, We were born to be beautiful to behold the beauty of our God, and then to be so transfixed and transformed by it that we become beautiful ourselves. I mean, what a great message to give to the students. This is who you are. God made you to behold His beauty. 
God intends for you to be transformed and sanctified by the direct experience of the beauty of the Lord. And as you become beautiful, you will share that with the world. His message to the students at Wheaton, and I think a message to all Christians, is that the beauty of the Lord is our deepest longing and our enduring destiny. So let's talk about our destiny. David desired to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of his life. This is as far as he could see. He says, as long as I live, I want to be in the temple, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, meditating on God, being in his presence, in his holy place. But the gospel meets and exceeds this expectation. Because the gospel promises not just the rest of our lives meditating on the beauty of the Lord. The gospel promises us eternity of gazing at the beautiful face of Jesus. The gospel promise to every believer today is that you will spend your eternity gazing at the beautiful face of Jesus. Revelation 22.4 describes the destiny of the redeemed in the new heaven and the new earth this way. It says, they will see his face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, meaning that God has worked in our lives. We are converted. We are being sanctified. We are with him. We have a relationship with him. But then he says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Saying God isn't done working with us. He continues to work and more is yet to come. He goes on to say, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, face to face, direct encounter with God. This is what the theologians call the, the beatific vision. Beatific is a word that, it's the same word we use for beatitudes, right? The blessedness, the happiness. The beatific vision is the happy vision, the blessed vision in eternity, the vision of God himself and being utterly satisfied in his presence. To see the face of Jesus is the goal and culmination of the Christian life. To see the face of Jesus without the distractions and restrictions of sin is our destiny. Listen to Mark Jones. He says, Christians are rightly told that they will not sin in heaven. Yet this is not so much because we are so holy, but because we will, we will be unable to take our eyes off Jesus. We are commanded to fix our eyes on Jesus in this life, Hebrews 12, because this is how we will live in eternity. When we look to him, we do not sin. When we look away, we place ourselves in grave danger. In heaven, our perpetual sight of him will remove such a peril forever. In eternity, all the redeemed will fix their eyes on Jesus and be completely satisfied by his beauty. 
I know I am reaching in the indescribable and the inexplicable things. I understand that. But it's only indescribable and inexplicable now because of where we are now. We are dealing with broken beauty. We are flawed. We are sinful. There's lots of issues. There's lots of limitations. But then in eternity, we will see him as he is. And we will be like him, meaning that we'll have the capacity, like he does, to absorb the beauty of the Lord and be utterly transformed by it. All of our experiences of beauty now point to our future, to our future unhindered experience of the beauty of our Redeemer. In other words, what you see now, when you see something beautiful and you kind of just stop and say, wow, this is really pretty, that's an indication that at some point, if you are in the, among the redeemed of the Lord, that at some point, this will be reflected in the beauty of the Lord and will be experienced in a fuller, fuller extent. Samuel Rutherford, the great Puritan, put it this way, put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden, in one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing would that be. And yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. What he's saying is that you see glimpses now. The prettiest thing, the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful person you know, the perfect, most perfect thing is just a glimpse. It's just a hint at the beauty of the Lord that you will be able to gaze on forever. This is your destiny. This is the promise of the gospel for you. Have you gazed on his beauty? Have you fixed your eyes on Jesus now? Have you fixed the eyes of faith on Jesus now? Have you been transfixed by his beauty? In other words, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you learned that the one thing worth pursuing in your life, above all else, is the relationship with the beautiful God? If you answer those questions in the affirmative, you say, yes, that's me. That describes me. I've been transfixed by his beauty. I'm being transformed by his beauty. I can't imagine my life without him. I follow him. I can't help but look at his beauty. If this is you, your destiny is the beatific vision. Your destiny is gazing at his beautiful face forever and being satisfied in him. But if this isn't you, this is not your destiny. There's another option here. There's another path. And if you're on that path, your future will be quite different from what I have described so far. How does the Bible describe the eternal future of those who do not believe in Jesus? I'll give you one verse. There are many, but I'll give you one. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7. It says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he returns, with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The gospel promises the beauty of the Lord to those who embrace Jesus by faith now. But it also promises punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might to those who disobey the gospel, reject His offer of salvation, and reject His beauty. The images of hell in Scripture are striking. It's darkness. It's gnashing of teeth. It's weeping. It's thirst. It's consuming fire. These are all images of beauty being destroyed. Will the unbelievers be separated from the Lord in eternity? Yes and no. No one can be separated from the Lord who is present everywhere at all times. But they will be separated from the glory of His might. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might means that they will still be in God's presence somehow because God is in all of His creation, and yet they will lose something of that presence. What is the separation? The separation is from the glory of His might, or, put it in other words, from the splendor of His holiness. In other words, the punishment for rejecting the gospel will be the eternal loss of God's beauty. All they will have will be God's awful, inaccessible, threatening, frightening, fearful holiness, but no beauty. Mark Jones again. The presence of Jesus' face shall be the reason why heaven is just that. Hell is hell because its occupants are always in the presence of God as judge, but never as a mediator whose face can be seen and enjoyed. The presence of God is not completely lost, but God appears in His holiness without beauty, without splendor, without attraction, without enjoyment, without satisfaction. God is there, but you can't be with Him. You can't see His face. You can't enjoy Him. And all you get is His dreadful holiness. That's hell. It is incredible just to imagine that, much less to experience. And all the more because the face of Jesus is promised to us now by grace. God doesn't want us not to have the splendor of His holiness. So He gives us the face of Jesus right now, and He promises the beatific vision to anyone who believes in Jesus. Now what is the basis for this promise? It is the cross of Jesus. This is what happened on the cross. Jesus Christ, God of God, man of man, person who is the most beautiful person in existence, gave up His beauty so we can enjoy and reflect His beauty forever. Listen to Isaiah 53. This was Jesus' experience. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. Do you know what this means? 
God, the most beautiful person, the most majestic person, the person who understands splendor and beauty more than anybody else, comes into our world and he has no form or majesty. Nobody wants to look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. There's no appeal. There's no attraction to him because he gave up his beauty for you. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. The most beautiful person, God himself, became ugly so we can be beautiful. Jesus went into the darkness of the cross so you can have the light of his glory forever. Jesus went into the hell of God's judgment so you can have the heaven of God's forgiveness. Jesus became as broken and nasty and dreadful as we are so we can become perfect like him. The incarnation of Jesus is God entering the ugliness of the world. It's God matching it within himself. The crucifixion of Jesus is God absorbing the ugliness of the world. The resurrection of Jesus is God restoring the beauty of the world. And the return of Jesus is God establishing beauty in his new creation forever. He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Will you be among the saints to welcome Jesus and have your gaze transfixed on his beautiful face?